Good morning. It is good to be back at Grace Point. I always count it a privilege uh, to stand behind the sacred desk and bring God's Word to God's people. Uh, It's even more so uh, knowing that I've been invited by your pastor, uh, a man whom I have quite a bit of respect for. Uh, I thank him and the session of your church for inviting me the, the old Puritan, Richard Sibbs, said that the greatest gift Christ in triumph will scatter to his church is men furnished with gifts for the service of his church. I know that at Grace Point, uh, you have experienced this truth in your ministers and your elders. The greatest gift that Christ has given his church after the Holy Spirit is officers of the church. Before we look at the passage in front of us today, let's go before the Lord one more time in prayer and ask him to open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in this, his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you. Uh, we thank you this day that, uh, that you have given us life and breath, that you've given us this day that we might rejoice and be glad in it. I ask you now to teach us from your word. I ask you to use your word to transform us, to conform us to the image of your Son by the power of your Spirit that we may see Jesus in this text today. We pray all of this in the precious name of your Son, our Lord, our our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Amen. In 2005, the American writer David Foster Wallace gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. It's quite a famous speech. Uh, One of the reasons it's famous is for how it starts. It starts this way. It says, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two fish swim on a bit, and then eventually look, one of them looks over at the other and goes, what's water? It's a funny way to start a speech. Um, I don't want to focus on that, though. Uh, I I think that how it ends is actually more interesting. Wallace, who who wasn't a Christian, ends his speech this way. He says, as he's reflecting on the value of education, he says, here's the thing that education does for you. It, it, It lets you decide what to worship. He goes on and says, because there's, there's something that is weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. I, I think Wallace is correct. We do decide what to worship. The, the, decision we, uh, the decision that we make shows up in how we live. Th- that, is to say, uh, that, that is to say what this passage tells us today from James chapter 1. 
What this passage tells us today is that what we worship is clearly seen in how we live. Or to put it another way, we become that which we worship. This passage today uh, tells us this, and I'm going to look at it in, in three points. Actually, I'm kind of cheating. I wanted to have a six-point sermon, but I'm told that six-point sermons immediately freak people out. So this is a three-point sermon, but each point has two points. <laughs> so it's a six-point sermon. Um, two types of worshipers, two examples of active obedience, and two reasons to obey. Two types of worshipers two examples of active obedience, and two reasons to obey. So James tells us at the very, in, in, this, in these two short verses that there are two types of worshipers. James, James chapter 1 as, as a whole kind of sets the scene for us about what James is going to actually talk about in the rest of the book. You could really actually just read chapter 1 and you wouldn't have to read the rest of the book because all the rest of the book is is really an explanation of the rest uh, of chapter 1. And in fact, verses 26 and 27 are probably even more so that we, we, we really don't have to read the rest of the book after we've read verses 26 and 27 because the rest of the book is just expansions. It's, a, it's an extended commentary, if you will, on these two verses. And in these two verses, James tells us that there are two types of worshipers in this world. Those who think they are religious and those who are religious. This, this word religious uh, is, a, is a fascinating word. It, it really only shows up here in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and then two other spots in the entire Bible, once in Acts and another time in Colossians. And, and, and oftentimes, when it show, uh, the times that it shows up in Acts and Colossians, it's talking about the, the actions of our worship, the, 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 the the ways in which we go about worship. And when we get to, uh, when we look at other, other literature that use this same word that aren't in the Bible, it's really about those, those actions that we have in our worship. It, but what James is getting at here perhaps is, is, is partially thinking about what we do in our worship, but, but I think is probably better summed up with that word that we don't use very often anymore in our day and age, but that word piety. James is saying, if you want to know what piety looks like, here's what it looks like. If you want to know what it looks like to live a holy life, let me tell you, here are the things. And he's saying, there are some people that look pious, but aren't, and then there are people that are actually pious, piety that the Lord accepts. And if Wallace is right, and I think he is, we are all worshipers. And what James is saying is, is that if we are all worshipers, the world can really be broken down into two types of worshipers. Those who practice a worthless religion and those who practice pure and undefiled religion. Notice what James says about a worthless religion. Now, now, when we start to talk about religion, I, I think that our immediate minds go to, and when we say, okay, what's worthless religion, our minds would immediately go to those people that don't pray, that don't come to church on Sunday, the people that don't read their Bibles. I mean, we could go on. We could say, like, that's worthless religion. People that just say that they're Christians, but they don't actually show up to church. 
They don't actually do those things that, that we would say are the things that show that you're really a Christian, you're really committed. But notice that James doesn't say that. James says that worthless religion is something else. It's, it's principally seen in two things. Okay, maybe an eight-point sermon now. Um, it's principally seen in two things, unbridled speech and deceiving oneself. Speech is this really fascinating uh, topic throughout the Bible. I mean, if we, if we go and look at the wisdom literature, if we look at the book of Psalms, the, 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 the way in which the Bible talks about our speech is pretty amazing. I mean, there's even a commandment about speech. We have the commandment. I mean, really, most people just kind of take it as uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Like, it's this really random commandment. that we're, Did God really make a commandment just not to cuss? It's, to some degree, yeah. But it's more than that. Speech throughout the Bible is this really, is this really all-encompassing attitude for how you live. And James is saying that if your tongue is unbridled, if your tongue is, is, a, is a tongue that, that, does not, that you have not learned how to tame, he says that this is worthless religion. James will actually go ahead and cover this in chapters 3 and 4, and he'll talk about it again in chapter 5. That's how important this is for James. He's saying, this is a sign that you have a worthless religion, that your, that your tongue is unbridled, that you, that you have like, like, it, like a wild horse that does not have a bit in its mouth. That's how your tongue is. It goes wherever it wants, and you have no control over it. Jesus talks about this, doesn't he, in, in Matthew, when he calls out the Pharisees and he says, you brood of vipers. And then what does he say? He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, what, what James is getting at here when he, when he says that, that one of the marks of worthless religion is unbridled speech, what James is getting at here is the fact that that our words matter. Our words matter. The, the, the language here that James uses as well, though, is language of passivity. He doesn't say, he, he, he says, he doesn't say that you're actively having a tongue that, that is doing whatever it wants. He's saying you just aren't doing that which it should be doing. You aren't bridling your tongue. It's a, it's a passive act. And yet he says that this passivity, this, in, this, in, this, this un, uninterestedness in, your, in, in caring about what your words do, what your tongue is doing, doesn't make you any less responsible for what your tongue does. When you, when you shout out words that you then go, I didn't mean that. James doesn't say, okay, well, you, that's okay. He says, no, that actually matters just as much as the words you use when you do uh, mean it. He, he's saying that, that, that the passivity and not bridling your tongue doesn't make you less active. He's saying you need to actively do the work of bridling your tongue actively breaking the commandment is just as bad as passively breaking the commandment. Not doing that which the Lord requires is just as bad as doing that which the Lord has forbidden. Now, now the, the, the fascinating thing that James does here is he says, he says if anyone thinks... He, 
he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives himself. If we read that passage, he's setting up this if-then statement, isn't he? He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue. What we're expecting there, as we're reading that passage, what we're expecting is to hear, then he has deceived himself. But that's not what James does here, is it? James doesn't say, if you, if you don't bridle your tongue, then you've deceived yourself. No, he says, if you, haven't, uh, if you don't bridle your tongue, but deceive your heart. What, what's James doing here? Well, he said it, he, he's setting in parallel the unbridled tongue and the deceived heart. An unbridled tongue is a corollary to a deceived heart, he's saying. Th- that is to say that... that Self-deception is tied to an unbridled tongue. That, that, is, that is being a hearer only that, that, that is, is, deceives ourselves if we're not a doer. And, and thus here he's saying speaking and not doing, hearing and not doing are synonymous we aren't to be, James has already said earlier in chapter 1, we aren't to be hearers of the word, but doers also. Verse 23. We, we deceive ourselves, and the deceiving of the heart is a verbal deceiving. We, we, we believe that we are something that we are not. Why, why are words so important? Why, why does James start out by saying, if you think you're religious and you do not bridle your tongue but deceive yourself, that your, your, your religion is worthless? Why, why is this so important? I mean, we all know the song or the poem, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we've heard that. I grew up, I grew up as I was getting teased as a uh, a, a child, like that, that's what I would say. I'm rubber, your glue, whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. Um, I, I think it's because of the truth that we actually know that that, that, that that poem, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We, we know that that's not true. James knows that that's not true. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will tear your heart out. So, so what does James tell us? He says, he says that we, we are to have bridled speech. Uh, our words, J- James will spend a heap of time in this book talking about the way our words work. And part of this is because words create worlds. How, how does God create the heavens and the earth? He creates the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence. What do your words do? They create worlds for people. So so when we tell somebody, I don't like you, you're not smart. When When we say, I hate you, those words create for people worlds into which they live. And James is saying that, that for a person that, want, that, that, that claims religion, the type of world that they create is not a world wherein they are 
destroying people because that's not what our God creates with His words. If we choose not to control our speech, what James is telling us, and he talks about this in chapter 1, verse 20, and he talks about it again in 3, verse 18. If we choose not to control our speech, justice and peace do not come about in this world. We jeopardize the social order if we are passive, if we are self-deceived. So if we, if we do not bridle our tongue but deceive our hearts, what does James say the result is? The result is worthless religion. The, the, the word here that, that's used for worthless is, is a word that could also mean uh, idle or, or fruitless, pointless. It, it's, it's found parallels in, in the Old Testament in, in Jeremiah chapter 2 and 8 and 10 and 51. We, we, we have this uncontrolled speech and and self-deception, it's this, our uncontrolled speech and self-deception, quite literally, James is saying, become idolatry. He says, he says that if, if we find that our, our tongue is unbridled and we, have, and we have deceived ourselves, then what we have is actually become idol worshipers. So that's the first worshiper that James gives us. The second worshiper that James gives us, he says, he, he says, here's what a pure and undefiled worshiper looks like. Here's what pure and undefiled religion is marked by. He says it's visiting the orphan and the widow and keeping oneself unstained from the world. Nowadays, we don't like the word religion, do we? We we, uh, we talk about religion, and, and we tend to think of religion as this pejorative term. Uh, uh, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. People are spiritual, but not religious. This makes my Christianity, this makes my religion, my worship, all too personal. It's about me and whatever God I'm serving. It's about me and Jesus, if you're a Christian. I mean, and, and there's a sense in which religion is bad. Uh, indeed, the, 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 the profound theologian Bono from U2 tells us this in a speech that he delivered uh, a few years back. He says, one thing that I picked up from my father and my mother was the sense that religion often gets in the way of God, for me at least. It got in the way. Seeing what religious people in the name of God did in my native land, and in this country, seeing, he's talking to Americans, seeing uh, God's secondhand car salesman on cable TV, uh, cable TV channels offering indulgences for cash. In fact, all over the world, seeing the self righteousness roll down like a mighty stream from the, uh, certain corners of the religious establishment, I must confess, I changed the channel. I wanted my MTV, even though I was a believer, perhaps because I was a believer. See, what, what Bono is getting at, what, what James is getting at here when he starts talking about the two types of worshipers, is that there is a religion, there is a worshiper that can be merely outward ceremonies. It's possible to come to church every Sunday and have this just be outward ceremonies. 
It's possible to have a religion that is true or untrue, valid or invalid. However, Christianity is a religion. It's a religion because our Lord himself gave us ceremonies. He gave us baptism in the Lord's Supper. He taught us to pray. He gave us his church. He instituted ceremonies for us. Now, what James is telling us is that Christianity is more than that. But it is not less than a religion. Religion is a good thing, James says. Worthless religion is not. Pure and undefiled religion, in pure and undefiled religion, the worshiper, that is the true worshiper, is active. He or she is active in the worship. And we'll turn now to that activity. James tells us that there are two types of worshipers, ones that worship worthless things, and this shows in their speech and their self-deception, and then there are the worshipers that have a pure and undefiled religion. And for this, James then gives us two examples of pure and undefiled religion. Let's look at the two examples James gives us. The first act that James tells us uh, a pure and undefiled religion is, is love toward the needy. He says that, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widow. Now, James isn't saying this is everything that is pure and undefiled religion, but he's saying this is the microcosm. This is, this is the, if we're going to say two things that it represents the whole, he's saying this is the thing. Caring for the orphan and the widow. He, he's using this language of to visit, once again, this is, this is language that's seeped with Old Testament meaning. What, what is, what is uh, James getting at? Well, James is pulling on Old Testament language. When, when God shows up for his people, shows up to deliver his people, shows up to bring justice to his people, when he cares for his people or seeks out his people or is concerned for his people, what does the Old Testament author say he's doing? It says he's visiting his people. So, so what's James telling us to do here? He's saying that, that care for the orphan and the widow, to visit, to show up, to bring justice, to seek out, to, to have concern with, to, to, to see a person with the intent to help them. He's saying that is what pure and undefiled religion looks like. What does it look like? Well, well it looks like Diaconal ministry, that, that is to say, the ministry that, that our deacons in our churches are to be about. You see, the, the church is the visible manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. I don't, I don't know if you heard at the end of, of Psalm 10, our, our, our first Bible reading, at the end of Psalm 10, how does it end? It, sends, it ends by saying, Lord, bring justice to the world, and then reminding everybody as they're worshiping that the Lord is king. When we come to worship, we are coming into the kingdom of God, the visible place where God dwells and rules over His people. The church is God's visible manifestation. The church is the visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom on earth. God unites us in the church, not only with Himself, but with one another through His Word and His Spirit. And the Spirit establishes in this place, amongst His people, God's kingdom. 
by securing a community of believers that, that extends not only to this place, but to society as a whole. We, we, we fellowship and, and we bring our alms, we, we, we bring our, 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 our monies, and we bring our brotherly love. I mean, this is what Acts 2 talks about. When, when the church is established, what happens? The, 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 the Christians all gather, and as they gather, they make sure that none among them has a need. And then what happens in Acts chapter 6? Acts chapter 6, the, the apostles have been preaching, the, 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 the gospel is going out, all of the, the, many, many people are coming in, and all of a sudden they realize that there are, there's an entire group of people that are no longer being cared for in the church, the widows of Greek descent. And the apostles are like, we can't do it all, so what are we going to do? The first office after apostles is not elders that come, that come into being, it's deacons. People that are going to assist the church in serving the needy among them. That are going to figure out ways in which to be the ones that lead the church in service. Not only to this community, but to the, to the world outside. John Calvin argues that this is one of the marks of the church. Care for the poor. And in fact, John Calvin goes so far as to say... The property of the church is for the poor. In fact, John Calvin goes even farther and he says that, that half of the church's budget should be dedicated to caring for the poor. The Spirit works through the institutional church through deacons. And, and these deacons then lead the, the rest of the church in acts of service. The role of, 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 of service, of, of the office of service, the diaconate, is to embrace the church's call to care for the distressed. If we aren't doing this, we're missing an entire part of what it means to be the church. To care for the poor and the needy, to care for the orphan and the widow is what we are called to do. Because it's an act of love. But, but not just an act of love, it's an act of justice. But it's something that can only happen through the work of the Spirit changing hearts. If Christ is to rule and have order in the church, the poor must be cared for. And for that, we need deacons and a church that is being led in these acts by deacons. Care for the least and the last, not only in our church, but in our society, is something that we are to be about. So what does this look like? Well, in the early church, it, it looked like starting with the actual church and, 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 and the widows in the church that needed to be cared for. Because to be a widow was to be incredibly vulnerable in society. It, it meant caring for the fatherless. Why, why fatherless? Why, why not, when, when, we say, when, we say father, when we see fatherless in the, Old, in the Old Testament and New Testament, why are we, what are we talking about? Well, because to be fatherless was to be an orphan. Not, not, not that just mothers couldn't, were, uh, weren't important, but the fact that you didn't have a father meant you didn't have a protector and a provider anymore in the family. 
To care for the fatherless and the, and the widow was what the early church was about. In fact, the early church was known to, care, to, to get children that had been left out in the cold to exposure because a family could no longer afford to care for this child, so they left their child out in the cold and in exposure, and the early church was known to take these children in. In fact, it was one of the, it was one of the complaints against the early church, one of the things that the, that the early uh, opponents of the church marked the church off as being weird, that they cared for people that weren't biologically related to them. They brought children in. The, the, the oddest thing about the church in the, in the early church, the thing that, that gave it the least credibility in society was that the people that they, that they reached out to were the least important, most vulnerable parts of society. It wasn't the upper middle class. It was the widows. It was the single moms struggling to provide for their family. This is what changes the Roman world. This is what converts Rome to Christianity. It's not that all of a sudden Constantine becomes a Christian. Yeah, that happens. But the thing that converts Rome, the thing that brings people into Rome, that makes Christianity even a viable option for Constantine, is the fact that the church cared for the poor and the oppressed in society. And people were flocking to it. It's what made persecution of the church unthinkable. Why are you killing these people that are caring for the poor in our, in our society? What's the church done? What good has the church ever done? Well, it's set up hospitals for people dying of leprosy. It starts schools. It's been, the church has been on the forefront of the abolition movement of slavery. In our, in our church here in New South Wales, we have Jericho Road, caring for the least and the last in our society. Alawa Children's Hospital, caring for, doing something that almost no other organization, hospital in all of Australia does, caring for children with severe needs. As I was preparing this sermon, I found, I ran across an article in the Sydney Morning Herald a few weeks ago. In New South Wales alone, there are 15,000 children and young people in our protection system, in our child protection system. And we don't have enough foster parents. Over a hundred of these children have been put in hotels and motels, apartments and caravan parks with unqualified employees looking after them. This is to our church's shame. The fact that there are, that there are children in this country, in this state, that don't have a place to call home is to our church's shame. Too many children move from place to place without a stable home life. Now, now, don't hear me wrong. Not each of you is called to be a foster parent. Not, not each of you is called to be an adoptive parent. But James doesn't let you off the hook. I can guarantee at least one of you is called to that. 
And if one of you is called to that, this entire church is called to that, to supporting that one family as they think about how do I care for the orphan in our midst. The second example that James gives us of pure and undefiled religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is a call to personal holiness. There's an acknowledgement that our environment acts as a corrupting factor in our lives, and thus we are to keep ourselves unstained from that corruption. This is not James telling us that we're to withdraw from the world, but we are to avoid being unduly influenced by the values of the world. You see, what James realizes is that it's difficult to be involved in the ills of the world without getting involved in the idolatry of the world. And he says it's difficult as well to cultivate holiness without cutting oneself off from the world. But what James is saying here in this one verse is that To be truly involved in the ills of the world requires personal holiness, and genuine holiness requires being involved in the ills of this world. To be involved in the ills of the world means that we get our hands dirty while remaining unstained from the world. So James gives us two worshipers. He gives us two examples. However, he gives us also two reasons to obey. First, he tells us that we do this before God. Notice what he says there. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. What's James saying there? He's quite literally saying religion that is, all of our worship is done before God, that is before the face of God, and God is the one that that judges our religion, and he judges our religion as pure and undefiled or worthless, And, and thus he's saying the first motivation that we have to having pure and undefiled religion is remembering that we're doing everything before the face of God. And he, says, and he says, thus, if you, if you are motivated, if you understand the reason for having pure and undefiled religion, if you're motivated by that, the first thing that you should do is care for the orphan and the widow and keep yourself unstained from the world. I, I don't know about you, but as I was preparing this sermon, I, I felt the weight of this passage. I, I, I hear this. And I think, I just don't know, I guess I'm just supposed to get to work. Let's pull myself up by my bootstraps, let's get this going, let's, let's go do this. How, how can I do this, though? I, I have so much on my plate, I have so many other things. And then I start to feel guilty that I'm not doing it. I, I, I'm sure you feel that way. Maybe you don't. It's hard if we're doing this before the face of God, then, then, there, then there's guilt because of the many times that we don't bridle our tongue, the many times that, that we don't care for the orphan and the widow, the many times that we haven't kept ourselves unstained from the world. It, it, it's hard. And thus James gives us the second reason to do this. Did, did you notice what that, what that second reason was? Uh, it's easy to miss if you, if you, didn't, if you weren't paying attention. In fact, if you don't have your Bible in front of you, you can actually miss it because James is actually building a pathway to get us there. He tells us uh, that, that, that 
he, he gives us a second reason, but you have to, have to understand this passage, these two verses in the context of everything that's come before, particularly verses 18 to 25. What does G- James do here? He says, he says of, of his own will he brought, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and, deceive, uh, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, per- and, and perseveres, being no hearer but, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And then he goes on, and, and we get to the passage that we're at now. And so, so what's James doing here? No, notice what James is doing. He, he's saying that we are to be hearing and receiving and doing God's word. But how does he start that out? Well, verse 18 tells us how we are to do this. He says we're to have a new birth. Did you see that in verse 18? Verse 18, he says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. James is saying, yes, this is what you should be doing, but he's saying you should be doing it because you've been born anew. And then he says, after you've been born anew, what what happens? You grow in a new life. And the characteristics that this new life displays. What James is saying here is is that if you've been born by the Father, if you've been born into this family by the Father, then like Father, like Son. There's a parallel. God gives life. How does He give life? Through His Word of truth, verse 18. So what are we to do in verse 26? Bridle our tongues. We are depraved and bound for death and God gives us life, verses, verse 18 and verse 14 and 15. So what are we to do? Well, our Father cares for the needs, so should we. He, he cares for the needy. God, God we, we were bound for death. We were depraved. We were, we were going to die, but God gives us life. What's our response? Verse 27, it's to care for the needy because our God cares for the needy because we were needy. Verse 18, he gives life through, uh, he gives, uh, his life-giving work has been, uh, has been purposed for us, that we should be his and holy. Verse, verse 18 tells us that, that God has given us this so that we might be holy in his sight. So what should we do? Verse 27, we should be marked by personal holiness. You see, what James is telling us here is that if you are a Christian, if you've been born anew, if you've been regenerated, if you've been given the new birth, then the only thing you can do is to tame your tongue, to care for the needy in our, in our society, the orphan and the widow, and to keep yourself unstained from this world. This, is, this isn't something that you just have to gin up inside of yourself and just kind of grit your teeth and bear it, but it's something that the Lord gives you and it's, it, it's, it, it flows out of you. It's the, it's the characteristics of being a child of God. 
Why do we care for the orphan and widow? Because we were the poor and the oppressed. We mirror God's concern when we are concerned with the uh, least and the last of society. Everyone worships. The question is, what type of worshiper are you? Maybe today you've heard these words and thought, I'm trying to walk that narrow path that Jesus tells us we are to walk, that that narrow path that leads to salvation, but but man, it's hard. I want to give up sometimes. Hear James encouraging you this way. James is saying, press on. Maybe today you hear these words and you are convicted. Maybe you're convicted for the first time or or for the hundredth time. Hear what James is telling you here. James is saying, run to Jesus. He, He will embrace you. Look at Him and know His great salvation. James's words are are, are sharp. They are black and white. They leave no middle ground for a moderate religion. It's possible for us to assume that we are religious when we are not to profess and practice a vain religion or one which is impure and defiled in the estimation of the Father. So James tells us that we need to examine ourselves. We need to know... We need, to, we need to be sure a thing so potent, James says, as the new birth. We need to know that that's taken place in our lives. And, and, we, and, and, and something that is so potent as the new birth cannot be hidden. It cannot fail to make its presence felt. To have the life of God in us and to remain unchanged is unthinkable. So let me leave you with this question. Do you have evidence to prove the new birth? If that that question sounds sharp, realize that it is no more sharp, no no sharper, no, no more threatening than what James himself has put here for us. It's it's the question that James leaves us with. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphan and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Father to the fatherless, protector of the, uh, of the widows, our God sets the lonely in families. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to his church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the Father to the fatherless. That we, who were once lost in our sin, that we, who were once debtors, that we, who were once slaves, have been set free. Not not only this, Lord, but you have made us your children, You've brought us into your family, a family that we 
are not a part of by nature, but solely by grace. So Lord, make us people who bring people into our families, not by nature, but purely because of grace. The grace that you give us that sends us out into this world to be your people in a poor and needy world. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.